Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. If you've been around for any length of time, we'll know we are in this series working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And we're looking very specifically at what God's plan or what God's design is for the church. And what we're going to see today is that God intends for us as a church to be a united community, uh, which I reckon is pretty relevant right now because I really don't think there are many generations in the history of the world that have been quite as divided as ours is right now. Which is pretty bizarre, isn't it? Because if you think about it, we should actually be the happiest and the most united people in all of history. I mean, we live longer, healthier, safer lives, relatively speaking, not necessarily everyone's experience, but we are in less pain, we tend to have more money, more comfort, and yet pretty much everywhere you look, people are fragmented, fractured, and just can't get along. Although we have more stuff, we are way less connected, we are more lonely, we're more distant from other human beings. All of which really should make us pause for a moment and think, why is this? I mean, if we've got all of these other things going for us, why hasn't it united us? What is it that we are not doing that means unity is like a bar of soap in the bath? We, we think we've kind of clutched hold of it and then it keeps slipping away again. What is it we're not doing as a society or a culture to live united with one another? Now, I've got a few thoughts on this, but rather than me sharing my thoughts with you, I thought I'd get you into groups of two or three, maybe four at a stretch around you, and maybe just for two minutes, see if you can get to the bottom of the problem of disunity in the world. Why are we so disunited? What are some of the causes of the disunity in the world around us? Go. That is more than enough time to put the world to rights. Um, I, I, tr I trust we've got that one sorted now. I think we can agree. I think we can agree there are all kinds of things going on in our culture that are working against unity. But through it all, the weird thing is, people still tend to think that unity is good, don't they? I mean, show of hands on this one. Who thinks, really, we ought to be more united? Yeah, a few people just pondering it, but I think that's almost unanimous in the room. There's always going to be one or two who disagree just for the sake of disunity. But, uh, but I think we can kind of agree unity is a good thing. We'd love it if we could see an end of all division, even if we simply want to be united on our own individual terms. But having agreed that unity is a good thing, I guess the all-important question is, how then do we find it? Well, at this point, it makes sense to tap into the insights 
of the Apostle Paul because Paul had this outstanding track record of building these radical communities that knit people together who in any other place in the world or in history would have absolutely hated one another. That was his life's work. That's what he did with his life. He came to see that Jesus was alive. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he began starting these new communities that trusted in Jesus and broke down barriers between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between male and female, rich and poor, really any and every divide. And Paul said, in this kind of community... In the church, those divides are going to come down. And he was immensely successful. And his teaching shaped much of the modern world, actually. And so if we want unity, I think it's well worth looking at what Paul has to say on the subject. And so uh, in the time that remains, I want to touch on not one, not two, not three, not four, but five keys to unity that Paul highlights in the passage that Charlene has just read to us. And I think, although they uh, uh, apply to society as a whole, really, Paul's primary focus here is on unity in the church. If we're going to pursue unity together as a church, as believers together, we need to be humble, centred, diverse, mature, and intentional. Those are the five points. Let's start with humility. If we want to be united, being humble is absolutely essential. Paul says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And then what's the first thing he calls us to do, to to live a life worthy of our calling? He says, always be humble. You know, there is nothing that fuels division more than pride. If you want to get two people divided, make them both proud. And what you'll find is that they instantly think the other person's faults are more significant than their own. That's what pride does. So let's say that I have a falling out with Nick, who's looking petrified at the prospect. But let's say I have a falling out with Nick, and I think that Nick is at least 80% responsible for the issue between us. I might admit, in a moment of humility, that some of it slightly is down to me, but in reality, most of it is his fault. I mean, look how guilty he's looking. Most of it's his fault. Now, I know what, what I meant, and I've been slightly clunky in the way I communicated, but Nick is, is just being so oversensitive and petty, and he's decided to make a real fuss about this. And so, in my pride, I shift all the blame onto him. And because Nick perhaps has some proud tendencies of his own, he does exactly the same thing, and therefore unity becomes almost impossible when we do that. On the other hand, humility works exactly the opposite way. Humility comes in and makes me say, look, I've had this falling out with Nick. And the chances are, given how much I know about not just Nick, but my own failings, a lot of this is probably my own fault. So I want to find out what that stuff is in me 
To use Jesus' famous analogy, I want to take out the log that's in my own eye before I start looking at the speck in his. And that'll help me get reconciled to Nick because I'll start looking for, well, where did I go wrong here? And of course, if, as is the case, Nick is humble, he will do precisely the same thing. He'll realize where he got it wrong, and the two of us will find unity through humility. In short, I'm I'm done with you now. You, You can rest again. In short, pride makes you think that your failings are way smaller than anyone else's, whereas humility makes you think that yours are actually bigger than the other person's. And this is true not just in friendships, but in all kinds of social relationships where you are looking for oneness. Uh, I think one of the biggest things about marriage is this. If you want your marriage relationship to work, you've got to be more aware of your own shortcomings than the other person's. You can see it in business as well. Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, claims that the truly great leaders are characterized by both humility and deep determination. You you might be very, very driven, but at the end of the day, you'll only take people with you if you are humble with it. You see, in politics, I'm just going to lob out two names, leave you to fill in the gaps. Okay, ready for it? Nelson Mandela, Donald Trump. Making no comments, just leave you to fill in the gaps. Personal humility can unite an unbelievably painful divided country. Personal pride can inflame and worsen situations where we've actually got a whole lot to agree about. You see it in sport, you see it in media, pretty much everywhere, and you can particularly see it in the Bible. The Old Testament is littered with leaders whose pride destroyed a nation. Saul, Ahab, Rehoboam, Nebuchadnezzar, the list goes on and on and on. But the one who brings Israel back together again, Jesus Christ, is the one who is the most compelling example of humility the world has ever seen. Although Jesus was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave or a servant, humbling himself to death on a cross, which is why God eventually exalted him. And so... Maintaining unity, first and foremost, requires being humble. Second, it also requires being centered. In other words, it requires sticking to the central things. It is keeping the main thing the main thing. It's identifying the things we agree on and keeping those things front and center, rather than just obsessing over all the stuff we disagree on around the periphery, around the edges. Now again, I think there's some common sense here, but what human beings do is just find these small differences between them and someone else and then make that difference into a huge deal in order to make their own identity clearer. So, for example, Everton fans don't disagree with fans of Edmonton in Canadian ice hockey because, quite honestly, they don't care. 
that, that they're so incredibly different, they don't fall out about it. However, Everton fans absolutely loathe Liverpool fans. I mean, but, but not in the church context, there's a bit of grace, but uh, they, they live in the same city, they've got so much in common, but there's something about that closeness that causes greater animosity. And we all do this. We focus on little things that separate us from one another. But what Paul says here is that you need to do the opposite of that. You've got to notice the things that make us one. He says there is one body and one spirit. Just as you are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There are seven ones that unite everybody who's a Christian. Whereas people typically identify peripheral things that make us different, Paul says we've got to focus on the core things that make us one. Focus on the things that cause us to be united, the things we have in common rather than the things that make us different. And if we keep those central truths in mind, rather than fixating on our minor disagreements, we maintain unity. Sadly, um, although not so sad looking at the weather, I will not be sticking around for the picnic today uh, because um, I'm hot-footing over to City Church straight after this meeting. Uh, it's Neil Powell who has been the leader of City Church for a number of years, handed over leadership uh, last year, uh, and he's moving down to London uh, to, is uh, taken on a role uh, with something called the London Project down there. Uh, but I've been working uh, really closely with Neil uh, for the last 12 years in partnership to see, uh, to start off with 20 churches planted around the city, uh, and I'm going uh, for his farewell service. Well, I'm missing the service, but I'm going for a free lunch, uh, and uh, that, that's the way it's going to work. But um, one of the things that we've found is when you don't focus on the things that make us different, but focus on those core truths, you can get way more done than if you just focus on trying to change one another. Neil would say, uh, in public, from a platform, if Church Central was the last remaining church in Birmingham, he wouldn't join it. Um, um, I'm slightly more generous to him than that, but, um, but really very different. But we united around the core truths and managed to pull off a whole lot together. So unity involves being humble. It involves being centered on the main things. Thirdly, this is the one that perhaps sounds a little odd or counterintuitive. It actually requires being diverse, Verse 7, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Down to verse 11, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith. In other words, God gave us all different gifts and he gave us leaders who are gifted in lots of different ways and he did all of that so that we might all become united. Now, it's a slightly complicated paragraph but I think maybe it's a little clearer if we work through it backwards. And so the end destination is that we all come to unity in our faith. That is where we are heading. 
If we manage to apply the rest of what Paul says in this paragraph, it will end up, it will result in unity in our faith. That's what Paul's saying. And then immediately before that, Paul refers to the building up of the body of Christ. So he says, there is something that can happen for the church to be built up and become more united. What's that something? Well, we get the answer in the previous phrase, to equip God's people to do his work. So there is something that can happen in and through the church, which means that the whole church does the work rather than leaving it just to a few paid professionals at the front. And so the idea here is that the church becomes more united when everybody in the church is serving and using their gifts in some way rather than just a few select people doing it all. But somewhere along the way, We've done this kind of strange thing where we separate out just a few who we think to be special people to do all the work so the rest of us can sit passively and just receive it. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's actually saying the opposite of that. He's saying the whole reason there are Christian leaders in the first place is to equip all of God's people to do his work. So if you like, this is my job description. I know some of you have been wondering what on earth I do with my time. This is my job description as one of the leaders of this church. My job is basically to serve the church by helping all of you serve one another and serve Jesus by using your God-given gifts. Basically, that is what I'm here to do. Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever watched a bunch of five or six-year-olds playing football? Anyone done that? Uh, a few of you have, and are kind of grimacing even at the prospect. It's not a pleasant sight. That The moment the whistle blows, every single one of them chases after the ball like a swarm of bees. They, they kind of follow the ball around the whole time in this kind of huge pack. They, they don't split up. They, they refuse to find space. They don't play in different positions. There is zero diversity in what they are each trying to do. They're all doing the exact same thing. And because they're all doing the exact same thing, it is absolute carnage. They keep colliding with one another. They trip over one another, trample all over each other. They're shouting at one another. They're crying. They rarely score any goals. And one of the things you want to do as an adult watching from the sidelines is shout, and a lot of parents do end up shouting, I tend to be slightly more restrained, but you want to shout, stop following the ball around, just go and stand in that position over there, you, you go there, you go there, you, you go over here, find some space, it's like the adult knows unity of purpose requires diversity of role. If you're going to achieve one thing, you have to have people doing different things rather than everybody all trying to do the exact same thing. And really that's what Paul's saying here. The reason you have Christian leaders, which is basically what apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers are, the reason why those gifts exist is to help equip the whole church to do the things that God has gifted them to do so that we might all attain unity in the face. 
So, different gifts have been given to each of us according to the measure of Christ. Every single person here in this room has been given a gift or some gifts from God that are given for the serving of the world and the serving of the church. And the reason we've all been given different ones is because it's only in that diversity that we attain unity. It's like you have got a whole bunch of things that you can do that I could never do, and vice versa. And so we need one another. And that leads to unity. So maintaining unity is a question of being humble, centered, diverse, And fourthly, it's a question of being mature. Verse 13, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we'll no longer be immature like children, won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Again, to use children as an example here. If you watch children playing, it's like one minute they're laughing and having fun, the next they're fighting and falling out with one another, uh, and then making up and being friends again, and then repeating all over again. And sadly, sometimes, slash often, that's what churches are like too. An immature church will constantly be chasing after the next new thing and falling out with each other in the process. But what maturity does is produce this steadiness. It's like we know what we believe. We know where we stand on things. We're rooted. When we disagree, we'll disagree really graciously. But because I'm mature, I'm not going to get tossed every which way. It means we don't fall out over things that aren't central. In fact, we yield our preferences for the common good. In other words, maturity means giving up the way we'd prefer things to be done for the sake of unity. And, important to add, not grumbling or moaning about it in private. And the result is that if we do this, we'll end up measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. In other words, we will think and act like him willingly laying down our lives for others. And really, in a nutshell, that is what Christian unity looks like. And it's distinctly different from attempts at unity in other settings. In most cases, me trying to get people to unite around cricket or climate change or reducing the speed limit in built-up areas is simply me trying to get people to unite in becoming like me and agreeing with some of the things that I think might be important in any given moment. But Christian unity doesn't work like that at all. It doesn't mean that you need to become more like me, you'll be relieved to hear. It means that you and I both need to become more like him. And that is where the hope comes from. When you and I are both looking to him, together we can grow to become more like him. So Jesus isn't just our example of humility or just the reason for our centrality or just the giver of our diversity, although he is all of that. 
He's also the grounds for our maturity. He's the one that you and I will ultimately resemble as we live a life of faith in pursuit of him. And the more we become like him, the more we'll become one with one another so that the world might know that we are one just as he and the Father are one. In a world that feels impossible to unite and bring back together again for all the reasons you suggested earlier, the church gets to model how it's possible. Which means, fifthly and finally, we need to be intentional about this. In the words of the Apostle Paul, I want to beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. You know, I think a lot of the time we tend to get hung up on what our calling is, don't we? And we tend to think of it very much as an individual thing, my calling. And so in our quest to see our personal calling fulfilled, we trample all over people. We use people We compete with people. We view other people as a threat. We get frustrated by other people. But all of that is an alien concept to the Bible. Uh, Our calling is something we work out together in community. Just think of some of the pictures or the images for the church or who we are together. We're the bride of Christ. We're a city on a hill. We're a new community We are the family of God. And any individual calling we may have, well, it's to be channeled for the building up of others. And this requires intentionality because it doesn't come naturally to us. It, It involves being proactive because if we don't do anything about it, it won't happen. I think it's fair to say it takes a lot of effort. And so with all of that in mind, as I come into land, I want you to just listen again to these words of Paul, the first few verses, and honestly reflect on whether or not this is an accurate description of the way you relate with others in the church. Paul says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Let me try and make this really practical. Here's what it might look like. When we gather like this on a Sunday, or maybe in our community groups, you go with a mindset, what a privilege it is for me to be in a room with these other people. I tell you, it is really awkward when you're in a room of people who think they are the centre. But if you viewed everyone in the church as someone for you to learn from and honour, I mean, how would that change your attitude? Well, for starters, you're not going to be judging them. You're not going to be critical of them. You're not going to mock them or be scornful towards them. 
You're not there looking out for all of their faults or pulling them down or gossiping about them behind their back. Let's be honest. It's really hard, isn't it, to be gentle with others if inwardly we're really opinionated and think we're right about everything. If we're like that, we're going to be very quick to dismiss other people and stick them into categories But Paul says here we're to rein in our own opinion to make space for other people to speak without fearing they're going to be ripped to shreds either to their face or behind their back in secret. If that isn't challenging enough, when people annoy you, which if you stick around for the picnic later, someone there probably will annoy you at some point, Paul says, be patient making allowance for their faults because of your love. Do you remember the time when one of Jesus' disciples came up to him and said, Lord, if someone sins against me, am I allowed to change community group? Or words to that effect. And Jesus says, no, categorically no. You need to stay put and forgive them more than once. And so the disciple asks, how many times, Lord, and tries to think of a ridiculously large number just to kind of exaggerate it and make a point. Seven times? Jesus says 70 times seven, which means we don't lay into the other person. We don't bad mouth them. We don't just ignore them and give them the cold shoulder. We show patience and we forgive. We make allowance for their faults because of our love. Look, there is no other community in the world that offers that kind of humility, gentleness, love, and patience. It's only the church. And here's the thing. If we don't get this right, what's our message to others? We don't have one. Our unity is the most graphic and profound demonstration of the power of the gospel. Listen, we've got to be the ones who model the solution to our world, not just magnify all the problems that are already out there. As we've seen, God's given us all we need to be a united church. Now, all we need to do is go and live it out. And so... Let's resolve in our hearts to be that kind of church. Even today, make that commitment, not just to be part of that kind of church, but do all you can, make every effort to help create it.